comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, let us stand for the reading of God's Word. As we turn here into this uh, second book of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, we're going to be turned uh, to chapter 8. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of this chapter. So let us turn there and let us hear the Word of God given to His people. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You have blessedly given to us these words on this day. And to God, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, may You apply these truths under our hearts. We might live lives uh, in accordance with Your Word. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The books of First and Second Corinthians are... Uh, of course, some of the longer letters that Paul uh, wrote uh, to the churches. And of course, the book of 1 Corinthians is full of the apostle telling the Corinthians everything that they had been doing wrong. The Corinthians had a party spirit about them. You know, some followed Apollos, some followed Paul. The Corinthians uh, fought over uh, the Lord's Supper. Some came drunk. Some ate all the food. You know, the Corinthian church have fought over the wearing of coverings upon the head of the women. And the Corinthian church even allowed gross sexual immorality to pervade their church. And we hear the Apostle Paul uh, here in 2 Corinthians having to deal with some things as well. You know, it's, it's a telling thing that, that the Corinthians had not fully learned the lesson. They had not fully heard what it was the Apostle Paul had been saying to them in uh, the first letter. Of course, we are often the same way. You know, we hear something the first time and then we have to be told again and again and again. There's a reason why Jesus Christ in the Gospels will often you know, start something by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Because He wants them to pay attention. And the passage before us this morning is the Apostle Paul calling out to the church at Corinth and saying, Hey, these folks up in Macedonia get it. They understand what the purpose of these things are. And people at Corinth, if you won't listen to me, maybe you'll look at these saints up here in Thessalonica and elsewhere, and you will heed their example and then follow likewise. 
Now, stepping back for a moment, do you remember what was one of the problems at Corinth uh, that Paul also dealt with? One of the great problems at Corinth is that they were spiritually immature. He complained to them that they could not handle the meat of the Word. That they were still babes in uh, the flesh. That they were still drinking their mother's milk. And why were they babes in the the flesh? Why were they unable uh, to understand these things? You ever wonder why Paul begins 1 Corinthians by declaring to them that he would have nothing known among them but Christ and Him crucified? It's because the Corinthian church had not come to understand the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had continued in kind of this uh, Judaizing way of, uh, of looking at Christ as, as something else that they needed. That Jesus was kind of a secondary thing. He was a supplement to their lives. And so as the Apostle Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians, you know, one of the things that he's been hammering home in these previous two chapters, before we get to chapter 8, is of the division between Belial and Christ. You know, there's an echo, especially in chapter 6 and chapter 7, of this thing that Jesus talks about quite often. That we cannot serve two masters. You know, either we will give all of ours to one or all of ours to another. It's one of the reasons why that, that, that Paul there speaks of the danger of believers marrying unbelievers. Because when you consider the nature of that kind of thing, what is it doing? Right? It's beginning a marriage with division rather than with unity. And the people at Corinth had begun their faith with this division, with this lack of unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's, a, it's one of the things that's important to think of again is how the Apostle Paul begins his letter to Thessalonica. You know, when he writes to the Thessalonians, what does he say? He says in chapter 1, verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in your, our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the problem at Corinth. The Gospel had only come to them in word. Again, they knew these things. right? They they, they knew that Jesus Christ was the Redeemer. They knew that Jesus was the Savior. They knew that Jesus did all these things. But what effect did it have on their lives? Well, again, as is evident uh, from Paul's repeating of these things... It had not had the effect that it was supposed to have. And why is that? Well, we get an, get an image of that in the passage this morning. Again, listen to what Paul says there. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness to you that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, 
imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we hoped, again listen here, pay attention to what he says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Again, the foundation of their service, the foundation of their love, the foundation of their, of their work was grounded in what God had done for them. You see, this is what it means to receive the, the, the Word of God, not just in word, but also in deed. To receive it, not only as it presents itself, but to own it as the confession of our own faith. You see, brothers and sisters, as we think upon this passage this morning, you know, one of the dangers that we often fall into when we see God chastising people is we like to stand on the side of the saints. You know, it's especially true when we look back at Israel. You know, we like to read the Old Testament and shake our heads and say, how dumb could these people be? It's especially true when we read the Exodus, right? You know, these people who had moments before seen God open the Red Sea. Now again, think about this for a second. God had taken the sea, opened it up, allowed the whole of Israel to walk through it, had destroyed their enemies, and given them manna in the desert. And what does Israel do for the whole time they're in the wilderness? They complain. They, uh, they, they hate each other. They fight amongst themselves. Uh, they hate Moses. Moses hates them. It's just a, a, a time of, of, of great discord. Yet why is that the case? And why is it, again in the kind of penultimate scene there in the Exodus, where we have Joshua and Caleb go up with the rest of the spies into the land? Again, what makes Joshua and Caleb different from all the others? When they go up into the land, what do they see? They see a land flowing with milk and honey. They see grapes as big as your head. They see all of these things. And why is it do they see that? Because what do the other spies see? The spies see giants walking the land, right? They see these big people who there's no way that Israel can defeat. Again, what's the difference in their mindset? You know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians there, who is walking by faith and who is walking by sight? You see, what Joshua and Caleb are doing is not focusing upon the food. They're focusing upon the promise of God. They don't care about the giants. They don't care about these things. Because what has God said to Israel? That God was giving them this land. Joshua and Caleb weren't overly concerned about the details there. They weren't really concerned about, well, what's the proper military strategy for overtaking people who are bigger than you? Well, we kind of see that later on, right? When David swings his, his, his thing and hits Goliath in the head. That's what they you know, called the cult revolver, right? You know, it, was the, it was the thing you know, that made everybody equal. Right? It didn't matter how big you were, you know, a forty-four shell is going to put a big hole in you. Well, what we see in Joshua and Caleb, again, is people who are beginning their work, beginning their focus, starting themselves with the foundation of knowing who they are in the promise of God. Knowing who they are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that their foundation is set in the chief cornerstone. 
It's set in the one who has already completed the work for their blessings. And so, brothers and sisters, when we look back at the Old Testament again, we like to put ourselves in the place of Joshua and Caleb. We like to say, well, of course, we would have gone up to the land and saw the milk and honey. But what's the reality? What's the truth if we're honest with ourselves? How often do we go about our lives, go about our business like the other spies? Looking at all the giants in the land, forgetting the promises of God, forgetting what it is that God has done for us, has, is continuing to do for us, and will do for us in the future. And this is part and parcel of what it means uh, to carry our cross, what it means uh, to live lives in abundance in Jesus Christ. And again, that's why Paul has gone to the Macedonian Christians to bring shame upon the Corinthians. Because you remember what Paul said the Macedonian church was going through at this time? Was the Macedonian church living lives of luxury? Were they living lives of peace and comfort and tranquility? Now what does he say there in that? That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in their riches. Again, so often in life we, we, we look at things again with the eyes of the flesh. And we look upon the weak things of the world and we say, surely they cannot do these things. What is the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 1? That God uses what? The weak things of the world to shame the strong. And what does God do to the Lord Jesus Christ through the son of a Nazareth carpenter? Can He bring salvation to the world? And God here is using these Macedonian Christians who are providing for the needs of Jerusalem. You can think about that for a moment. Jerusalem is probably the most wealthy city amongst all the Christian cities of the time. It's the one where all the big people are. But who is doing the labors? It's these Macedonian Christians who, who, who are in deep poverty. And when he says that, he's meaning physical, material poverty. They do not have the resources to support the church in Jerusalem. But what are they doing? They're supporting it anyway. And why are they doing that? Because again, they have grounded themselves in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They understand that these material things are nothing in comparison to the heavenly things, the spiritual things that they have received in Jesus Christ. And that's an important thing to consider again when we think about our service in the local church. And so often we, we focus this service upon the physical things that we can do. You know, whether we can you know, lift big boulders or, 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 or spend hours doing particular labors. You know, one of my favorite little stories in the Bible is of Anna the prophetess there in Luke chapter 1. And what does is, what is Anna say? It says there that she has been a widow for 84 years. And what has she been doing for those 84 years? She's been sitting in the temple proclaiming the good things of God. She's been in the temple praying for the coming of the Messiah. Likewise, Simeon there, what has he been doing for all this time? He's been praying for the consolation of Israel. What does Anna and what does Simeon have in the eyes of the world? It seems wasteful, right? To just sit somewhere for 84 years. You know, what would we say about somebody who sat in the same place for 84 years? Right? We, we, would, we would think exactly how the world thinks. You know, that's kind of the nature of our sinfulness. 
We can think of the blessings that were brought upon Israel because of the faithful prayers of Anna and Simeon. And when we think of service to the church, again, one of the most important things that we can do is pray for the church. You know, sometimes we can treat prayer as that, that kind of, oh yeah, we're supposed to do that kind of thing. But how does everything in the Bible begin? It begins with the intercession of the Lord God. And how does God work His intercession? But through the faithful prayer of the saints. You know, we went over uh, in, in the book of Daniel this morning in Sabbath school. And in, in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, Daniel begins to pray in repentance for the sins of Israel. And of course, we talked about that and we noticed how, you know, David or Daniel there doesn't kind of set himself above Israel, but recognizes that he himself has sinned before the Lord and that Israel as a nation has sinned before the Lord. And so he speaks to the Lord and he, and he comes before him. And at the end of the prayer, one of the things you hear there in chapter 9 is that the Lord God had already begun to answer the prayer. Before Daniel even began to sit and pray. And one of those things that's meant to remind us there again is of the power of the work of prayer. Again, what does Jesus say in the Gospels? You have not because you ask not. Again, how often, again, when we come before the Lord our God in prayer, do we do so in a manner befitting a, a pagan? And we come to God uh, as the pagans did in the, in, in the old world and do today. You know, coming before God, offering sacrifices, and say, God, do this for me now. Do it for me now. Do it and get it done. But how does even our Lord Jesus come before the Lord our God? Again, how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Again, hallowed be thy name. Again, you, you think of the nature there. Again, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Again, this attitude of prayer is what we see in the, in the faithful saints of Thessalonica. And this is what Paul, again, is driving home to these Corinthians. Remember, again, who your God is. And remember what He has called you to do in the service of the church. And so our service has to begin with prayer. It has to begin with seeking the Lord's intercession in the life of the church. We can go and do all the outreach we want to do until we're blue in the face. But if we don't begin that work by asking the Lord to bless it, why is it do we think that anything is going to come from it? And the Scriptures are clear about this. But again, our hearts are not so clear, are they? And that's the danger we always fall into. We always think that not only do we have a better way than what God has declared, but that we don't really need God's help in these things. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll pray in the midst of it and say, oh yeah, God, you do this while we're doing it. You know, we, we often treat God, again, as a kind of a divine vending machine you know, where we go to Him and we, we, we put our quarters in and, and then when the thing doesn't come all the way down, we beat on it and say, God, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you released my chips out of the machine? Again, what's the problem there? God's not there for us. Right? God is not there to kind of do whatever we want Him to do. And the Macedonian Christians understood this. That's why in the midst of their physical poverty, in the midst of their affliction, they had the abundance of their joy. Again, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, 
And what a key phrase that is when we consider the work of God in our hearts. Again, do any of us have the ability within ourselves to do any of these things? Well, of course we don't have that ability. Right? We are broken vessels. We are weak. We have no strength in ourselves. We, we are like uh, the lame. And you think particularly the lame man who, who sat there at the pool of Bethsaida. Again, he had no one to help him to get into the pool to be healed. We are like uh, those uh, dry bones in uh, the valley in Ezekiel 37. We can't put flesh on ourselves, let alone save ourselves. Let alone do the work of the Gospel in the light of these things. We are wholly in need of the grace of God. We are wholly in need of the power and the strength of God. So why is it? Do we always seem to enter into these things thinking that it's a 50-50 proposition? God does His part, I'll do my part. You know, oftentimes we'll even talk about salvation. We'll be good Calvinists, right? We'll believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. We'll say, yes, salvation is fully the work of God. But when it comes to the Christian life, we all become Arminians, right? We, we all become those who think, well, God will give me 50% sanctification and the rest is up to me. Right? And, and if we believe that and we live like that, what happens? We fall flat on our face. Because we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot live the life that we're called to live in the Gospels by the strength of our own power. That's again why we see again Paul pushing this point to the Corinthians. And for I bear witness that according to better, yes, and beyond their ability... Because again, the Macedonians did not have the ability to do these things. They weren't a bunch of strong men. They weren't a bunch of rich people. They were not a bunch of influential men and women who could call up ships and take all kinds of food to Jerusalem. But they were faithful to what God had told them to do. They were faithful to the call of Christian service that He calls all of us to. Again, to begin that work with prayer and to do that work in the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit. To do it in the strength of the grace of the Lord our God. You think uh, later on here in the the book of 2 Corinthians, we hear Paul talk about that famous thorn in the flesh. And and whatever it is, it's kind of immaterial what it is. What does Christ say to Paul as Paul is talking about these things? What does he say to him there concerning uh, this thing? I played with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, again, think about that for a moment. What does it mean that his strength is made perfect in weakness? Well, again, think about something that I said in the prayer. Our nature is to be haughty, right? Our nature is to build up ourselves. Our nature is to stand strong in the power of our own uh, walk. But again, the call of the Gospel, the call of the Scriptures, is to humble ourselves before the Lord our God. To confess before the Lord that we are unable to do these things. That we cannot fulfill the call of God. Because again, we can't do it. No matter how, much, how many times we try to convince ourselves that we can. You know, as I shared with the kids, no matter how many times I read that Ted Williams book, I was not going to become a better hitter. Right? Because I couldn't see. 
Right? I did not have the physical talent to be a good baseball player, no matter how much I willed it within myself. I just wasn't who God had made me to be. And that's, you know, we think about those kind of illustrations, but it's an important one to think of in our own Christian life. Again, we are incapable of being the best Christians that we can be. Because we're weak vessels. We are unable to do these things. And we have to confess that to ourselves. We have to be able to come before the Lord of glory and fall at His feet and say, Lord, help me! Lord, do these things for me! And the Macedonians, again, who have had this understanding within themselves, again, have done these things because, as it notes here, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Again, this attitude of Christian service that God calls us to, again, is not to build ourselves up. Again, that's another trap. That's another idol, another sin that we often fall into. And of course, we can testify to examples of this, but none of us wants to use the example of ourselves, I'm sure. But when we do the works of service to the church, we're not to seek our own glory. We're not to do things in order that we might be seen by the world. You know, that's what the great sin of the Pharisees was in Matthew chapter 6. Remember, they wanted to stand on the street corners and beat their chests and say, Look at me, look how righteous I am. Look at my prayer life. Look at all these things I do. Shouldn't you be glad that I'm here with you? But again, that's how the world works. And that's how sinful man works. What what, what does Jesus say in the midst of that? That the left and the right hand are not to know what they're doing? And that's not not to say that everything we do has to be in secret. But again, the the teaching there uh, that the Macedonian church had imbibed is that they weren't doing these things in order that the Corinthian church might say, Man! Those Macedonians got it going on. They're awesome. I wish we could be more like them. It's not so that the church at Jerusalem would be saying, you know what? Those Macedonians, boy, they really helped us out. I'm really glad that they're there. That wasn't the attitude through which the Macedonians served the Lord Jesus Christ. They served the Lord Jesus Christ because it was the will of God. Because it's what God calls all Christians to in the service of the church. Again, when we do whatever it is we do at Bethany or we do it out in the world, again, this same attitude is to pervade us. And we're not to seek the best seats in the house. The Pharisees were good about that, right? They fought whoever got to sit up front. Now, of course, that's not a problem in a Presbyterian church, but we, we, we see these things in the nature of the calling of the Scriptures. Again, that we are to put everyone before ourselves. Right? Because what does Jesus say about the first and the last? Yeah, again, this is it's a, of course a danger in all of our walks with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here again that they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. This is another aspect of this Christian service that is vital for us to come to grips with. We're doing this for the betterment of the saints. We're doing it for the blessing of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to love one another, uh, the Bible tells us. And are we loving one another if we're competing in Christian service? Are we loving one another if we're seeking our own glory in the midst of Christian service? 
Are we seeking our own glory if we spend our time wondering why other people aren't doing things? Again, that's not the attitude through which Paul is laying forward this, this teaching of Christian service. That we are to be faithful in what God has called us to do and not to sit around wondering why it is that other people aren't doing things. Because again, that's not the spirit of Christian love. It's not the spirit of one who has been called to serve the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. Again, we're not to seek our own selves in this. But again, that doesn't get us off the hook if we're not doing anything. Again, what we see here, again, is this call not only to serve, but to serve so that we are ministering to the saints. Again, this call of service is deeply embedded in our understanding of our Christian lives. And this service cannot be done unless it's done in the foundation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And it cannot be done unless we understand, again, the call, the permanent call that God gives to us. The Christian service isn't just something we do every now and then. It isn't just one thing that we do, but it's the entirety of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Again, we, we think of particular ways in which we minister to the saints. You know, we, we minister to the saints by being present with them. You can't minister to people you're not with. You can't minister to people whom you only see every now and then. You know, we minister to one another in morning worship. You know, we, we, we often have very bizarre ideas about what we're doing here. One of the primary things we're doing on Sunday mornings is ministering to one another. Ministering to one another in the fellowship of the saints. Because like it or not, we're going to be with these people for eternity. And we better get to liking them now. You know, we, we, we consider these things again and we, we understand Again, these are the people that God has given to us. He could have given us other people. He could have given us people easier to like. That's not how God works. That's not how God works at all. And you think again of the ministry in the book of Acts that we've been going over. Do you think that Philip was real big on talking to some Ethiopian eunuch before he had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? But God called him in Christian service to bring the gospel to him, to testify to him of the work of Jesus of Nazareth. Again, it's one of the things Paul will, will declare to the Galatians who particularly struggle with these things. And that we are no longer what? Male or female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, but we are one together in Jesus Christ. We are one faith, one baptism in the Lord. And this must be, again, a part and parcel of our service to one another. We don't serve one another because we have to. Right? Again, that's the wrong attitude. We serve one another because we love one another. And we love one another because we have a common Savior, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we go from this place this morning, as we consider the example of the Macedonians, as we think about the sins of the Corinthians, Let us be careful not to to, to place ourselves in the wrong camp. But let us be willing to be honest with ourselves. Let us consider again where it is that God has called us to serve His church. Where God has called us to love one another in the Gospel. To seek the blessings of the saints 
here at Bethany and, and wherever it is that we are. For again, we do this because it is the will of God. Because it is the call of our Savior and it is the example of Jesus Christ. Again, who did not consider it robbery to be with God, but came in the form of man. In order to do what? In order to give Himself as a ransom for many. As to give Himself for the true trial, the true problem that we all have. That we are dead sinners in need of a Savior. And having been saved, we are those who live not in ourselves, but live in Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly